Well, good morning. Good to see you here. Uh, Handy, if you had a Bible open there at Acts chapter 19, I think um, I've got most of the verses I'm referring to up on the screen behind me, but um, always good to check. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we uh, come to look at this part of God's word together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. We thank you for your word, uh, that through it uh, you speak to us, uh, you make yourself known, uh, and uh, we too can come to understand uh, the depths of your love for us, the wonder of the salvation that you've won for us in Jesus, um, and what it looks like for us to be followers of our Lord and Saviour. And so we pray that today um, you would impress those things uh, upon us, uh, and you might do your work of changing us to be more like your son. We pray to his name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus. Uh, and without wanting to sound alarmist, uh, there's no doubt that our cultural landscape has changed in recent years and that the hostility, sometimes an open hostility, towards people of faith is increasing. Uh, so today we're going to consider the cost of the gospel, uh, how following Jesus demands and produces transformation. Uh, and there's a cost that comes with that. It comes firstly from the personal cost um, of owning Jesus as Lord. And there's a broader cost account from the opposition that uh, following Jesus often attracts. Now, I want to state up front that I think this is a cost worth bearing, um, and it really very much pales in comparison to the blessing and the peace which the gospel brings, both at a personal and a social level. Um, but I think it's a cost we need to be conscious of and to count. Um, as we've traced over these stories in the book of Acts, you can't help but notice that the gospel is a disruptive and sometimes divisive substance. Wherever it goes, it creates great change, great disturbance, and sometimes with that, opposition. We see people's lives being radically transformed as they come to know Jesus, but we also see the opposition that comes towards those who profess faith and are preaching it as well. And so this morning, we're going to consider that cost, uh, the cost of change and the cost of opposition. Now, in Acts 19, we read about what happens when Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. And now, as his usual practice was, Paul begins amongst the Jewish community, sharing the gospel with them. He goes to the local synagogue. Um, and there we read that Paul gets a reasonable hearing in that forum. In fact, we're told he, he spends three months there at the synagogue, sharing the gospel, trying to persuade uh, his fellow Jews that Jesus is the saviour that God promised to send them. But things eventually deteriorate there, as we read about in verse 9. It says, Some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Paul eventually wears out his welcome uh, at the synagogue, and so he, he moves the meeting uh, to a public space, to the town's lecture hall. And it seems to become something of a makeshift church. In fact, we're told that Paul spends the next two years at this location teaching 
sharing the good news about Jesus. The story goes on to describe a lot of the incredible things that take place in Ephesus while Paul and the other believers are there. Some of the miracles that Paul does are extraordinary and there's radical changes that take place in the lives of a number of the Ephesian believers. Just have a look at verses 18 and 19 as sort of an example of this. This is sort of where our reading began today. It says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. These Christians realized that their way of life needed to change. They realized that if Jesus was going to be the Lord of their lives, they couldn't continue living the way that they had. And some of those who had practiced sorcery took it upon themselves to burn all of their magic books, their scrolls. Now Luke says the total value of the material that was destroyed was 50,000 drachmas. Now I suspect you probably don't know your, your drachma from your denarius, so I'll convert that for you. Um, in today's money, that's around about $10 million. $10 million worth of material they burn. Now, that story may trigger something for you with a description of a, a public book burning. Um, sadly, I think some Christian movements and other movements have encouraged that kind of thing um, to, to rid themselves of material they consider to be immoral or corrupting, particularly literature and sometimes, even more recently, certain kinds of music. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting this is a practice that we should adopt, but it describes what these people did to make a definitive statement about where their loyalties now belonged. It's a spontaneous thing and it's, it's driven by their convictions. And yes, they're destroying something of great monetary value. And for some of them, it would have also been a means of income as well. But they're prepared to do it. And in doing that, they're symbolically burning their bridges back to their old life in idolatry. They want to take a stand for Jesus no matter the cost, and the cost is significant. I wonder if you've ever been confronted with a decision like that, a costly uh, or, or a radical decision that you had to make when you became a follower of Jesus. Or maybe it's a decision you know you should make but haven't yet. And I don't just mean in a financial sense. I think more often than not, these can be things that, that our identity is tied up in. And we know we need to, to step away from it. Uh, I remember there was a bloke in uh, a town where I grew up, a town called Lake Ajelligo. And this guy had become a Christian later in life. And he was uh, a bit of a local celebrity. He was a talented yachtsman. Um, and if you've ever been to Lake Ajelligo... Um, and you know what the lake is like there, you'd wonder how anyone uh, could become. A, uh, he represented Australia in sailing. I'm not quite sure how he managed to do that sailing on Lake Ajelligo, but he did. Um, and his whole life was tied up in sailing. But when he became a Christian, he gave it away. For him, sailing was his idol. It was what he was living for. It was taking up all of his time, 
every weekend was out on the lake. But now he wanted to make time for other things, his family, his involvement in his local church. It wasn't an easy call for him, but it's what he felt he had to do if he was going to be serious about living for Jesus. And it was costly. He lost friends through that, lost the admiration of others in town. But if you asked him, it was not something he regretted. I wonder if perhaps there's a costly decision that you know you ought to make, but lack perhaps the will or the courage to do that. It might be something related to your work, something that's so consumed you that you know it's hurting your relationship with God and with others. You know you need to make a change, but perhaps you fear what that will cost you. Maybe it's an addiction that you struggle with and you've never had the courage to acknowledge that for what it is, to confess that, to repent over it, to seek the help that you need. Maybe it's shame that's keeping you from bringing that out into the open. Maybe it's a fear of losing what that addiction actually gives you. Maybe for you it's a hobby uh, or a sport that you're obsessed with. Perhaps it's a relationship that you're involved in and you know that's dividing your loyalty to God. Now, I'm not saying that God asks us to stop doing all of the things that we love in order to follow him. It's not that. More often than not, we can find ways to honour God through the things that we love, through the things that we're passionate about. And God can certainly redeem those things in our lives that we may be captive to. You know, he can transform our hearts so that um, we can continue doing those things, but now in a way that serves him and honours him and loves others. That's certainly possible too. But it's also true that there are some things. they just got to go. Maybe they're incompatible, simply incompatible with living for Jesus, like the sorcery of the Ephesians, for example. Or maybe it's something that we just know it's got such a grip on our hearts, such a grip on our lives, that we know we need to just step away from it. Like those believers in Ephesus, we shouldn't balk at the cost of following Jesus. He's worth far more than anything we might ever give up in this life for him. Will you resolve this morning to make that change? And do it gladly, counting the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Now, because of the change the gospel brings, the things that Jesus even demands from us, that inevitably brings opposition as well. The change that the gospel was bringing to Ephesus was certainly not going unnoticed. The transformed lives of many people had this rather unusual repercussion, or perhaps a predictable repercussion. Many cities in the Roman Empire had a local god, a god who was particularly venerated in that city. And in Ephesus, that god was Artemis. 
Uh, in fact, the temple for the worship of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so that meant that religion was big business in Ephesus. Religious tourism was a big deal. And the idol trade was a significant thing in town. And so you can imagine how pleased the business owners would be about a new growing religion in their town that wanted nothing to do with idols, whose followers were willing to even burn $10 million worth of sacred magic books. If this went on unchecked and unchallenged, these followers continue to grow in number, idol sales might be hurt. And so enter Demetrius. We pick up that story there from verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, that was a way of talking about the Christians, the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. You can catch up now. So this silversmith named Demetrius uh, kind of brings the union together. He calls a stop work meeting. Uh, all the members of the metal workers and idol makers union, the MWIMU, as they were known, um, he's concerned about the impact of this new religion in town and how it's going to affect their livelihood. Um, I think he also has a concern, although it might be primarily economic, but he does also put forward the, the impact religiously and culturally on their town as well. He says this bloke Paul has been going around telling people that man-made gods are no gods at all and they couldn't have that. And so with their trade union workers all whipped up into a frenzy, they grab a couple of Paul's travelling companions. We're not quite sure exactly where Paul was, but they couldn't find him. And they drag them off to the theatre, they say. It's a big public meeting place, and it's still there to this day. I don't know, have, has anyone here ever been to Ephesus? There you go, I'm sure you've seen this. Um, it could seat, they reckon, close to 25,000 people. They drag Paul's companions there, and a big crowd follows... And I'm not sure what they plan to do. In fact, they don't seem to know either. Look what it says in verse 32. It says, The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. So after a couple of frenzied hours of chanting about how great Artemis was, um, we're told the town clerk finally gets up. Got to love a good clerk. And they address the crowd telling them if there's any genuine grievance they have against Paul and the others, there's a proper legal way to deal with it. Um, as it is, they're all at risk of being charged with rioting. Kind of dismisses them and the whole thing fizzles out. Now, that was rare for Paul. Uh, usually he ended up in prison or on the receiving end of some sort of mob justice after these things happen. But he spared that here, um, as are his companions. But the story reminds us that 
the change is never going to be an easy thing and the change that the gospel brings is almost always going to meet with opposition. That opposition will often come from people who feel resentment about the impact that the gospel is having on family traditions, religious beliefs, cultural practices, and sometimes even the economy. Sometimes opposition will come from those with the most to lose, like the metal workers here in Ephesus, or perhaps those in positions of power whose power is enshrined in a particular worldview. If we're going to continue sharing the good news about Jesus with our culture, we need to be prepared for that kind of opposition. It ought not to surprise us when it happens. We should expect it. We don't want opposition to be the thing that keeps us from sharing the good news about Jesus as though, well, when opposition comes, it means we must be doing something wrong. We don't want to find ourselves feeling ashamed of belonging to Jesus because others demand that we should. In our current cultural climate, I think we can expect this to become more and more the norm for us. I mean, just think about the way that Christians are typically, typically portrayed uh, in the mainstream media. Most social issues that get presented, um, the Christian voice is usually planted somewhere between mockery and outright hatred. The question for us is whether we will allow that opposition to silence us, or I think perhaps more likely, the way that we'll probably succumb to that pressure is to try and redefine what we believe, what we profess, to try and make ourselves a smaller target, if you like, to perhaps make Jesus and ourselves more palatable to our ever-shifting culture. But the great danger of capitulating to what our culture wants us to be is that we'll inevitably empty the gospel of its life-giving and life-transforming power when we tell ourselves that the gospel doesn't really need to cost us anything at all, we end up cheapening it, apart from deluding ourselves in the process. I think we need to be careful that we don't trade away the very thing that can actually bring people new life, true peace with God. And that is the good news about Jesus. I want to finish by simply saying that Jesus is worth it. Whatever comes our way, and let's be honest, in our culture, it's nothing like what Christians in other parts of the world endure and experience. But it's real all the same. It may be exclusion. It might be derision. Opposition. But whatever is said about you, to you. Remember that Jesus is the one who brings true peace, eternal life, and the more people who live with him as their Lord, the more peace, the more justice, the more compassion we will see in our communities on this earth as people's lives are transformed and transformed for the better.
So let's gladly count the cost that comes with following Jesus and sharing the good news about him. Joe's going to lead us in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you that you are powerful to change stubborn hearts, transform lives and bring new life so that loss may turn and see you and live. Please make us aware of the distractions and barriers that hinder the ongoing work of discipleship in our lives. We pray for courage to face opposition to the work of your kingdom and to your gospel. Help us to be ready to take a stand and never compromise on speaking the truth with love. Lord, our wealth is in the cross. May there be nothing more we want than just to know your love. May our hearts be set on Christ so that we count all else as loss. The greatest of our crowns mean nothing to us now. Help us count up the cost and see that all our wealth is in the cross. Jesus, you are worth every cost. Amen. Handing over to the music team to lead us in our final song.